Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast. This is your northern one speaking. We are flying at an altitude of about six feet three inches from the ground today. What you are about to listen to is an interview that Lewin and I conducted with the author Gavin Jimison. Gavin is the author of Water's Gleaming Gold, which is a recently released book about the life of Hugh Jumbo Edwards. You will find out more as you listen. Gavin is an absolutely fantastic interviewee. The life that he has captured in a book is one of the great lives and one of the great rowing stories. And we hope that you enjoy the interview. Gavin has very kindly agreed that Broken Oars listeners can receive a discount for their copy of Water's Gleaming Gold. If you go to www.troubadour.co.uk backslash bookshop backslash biography backslash Water's Gleaming Gold, then there is a discount code when you add the book to the basket. The discount code will allow a listener to buy the book at 15% discount. Also, the code Broken Oars can be used as a discount code for other distributors. Please listen to this episode and then go out and buy yourself a copy of Water's Gleaming Gold because even though we outline some of the story, it doesn't scratch the surface. And then once you've bought a copy and read it, make sure that you buy one for every other rower that you know in your family or circle of friends. It really is one of the great rowing stories. So, once again, you can receive a discount through Broken Oars, thanks to Gavin, on your copy of Water's Gleaming Gold by going to www.troubadour.co.uk backslash bookslop backslash biography backslash Water's Gleaming Gold. I will put all of the information in the episode blurb. Please spread the word and help make this book the success that it deserves to be about one of rowing's great stories. Thank you. Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Broken Rules podcast. Now, before I hand over to my most esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Aaron Jackson, because I am going to be letting him make most of the running here, I would, before I do that, I would like to just say thank you to the people who have chosen to support the pod through our Buy Me A Coffee website, and to um, and so particularly to the people who have chosen to download our Broken Oars Power Widget and uh, created it in conjunction with Diverstrom University, the world's favorite made-up university. Um, and if you so choose to do that, um, we'd be very, very grateful. The link to this can be found on all our socials and on our link tree attached to those and will be available at the bottom of the blurb on this podcast. Now, without further ado, ado, Excuse me, I do. I do, I do, I do, I do. Aaron, I will hand the reins to you. Please, can you introduce our wonderful guest this week and the subject of our podcast? I would love to. I've been really looking forward to this ever since this book hit the mat. But before I do, I just have to ask something. When you introduce me as your most esteemed colleague, does that mean that there are other colleagues around who are somewhat less esteemed? who don't get a mention. There are hypothetical colleagues and they would all be less esteemed than you. I don't know whether to feel loved or slightly 
paranoid about my position as the co-anchor of Broken Oars podcast that I might be usurped at any given point in time, but we'll move on from that. So Lewin might have turned off all of our listenership by saying this is about history and literature and arts and culture, but it's actually about rowing. And I am really, really happy to say that today we are joined by Gavin Jimison. And I've checked the pronunciation of this. This is the Scots pronunciation. Now, Gavin is the author of Water's Gleaming Gold. This is, and if you've listened to the pod before, you know how I feel about rowing stories. I think this podcast has introduced us to people who've told us human rowing stories that never really come out in traditional sporting narratives. I don't think that rowing has ever really been captured in a book. And I've read Water's Gleaming Gold, and I think it is one of the great rowing stories. It's be a welcome addition in any rower's stocking this Christmas because it tells the story and it is an incredible one of Hugh Jumbo Edwards, who was a British rower in the 1920s and 1930s, who overcame incredible challenges to become, I think we can probably safely say, Gavin, the best rower of his generation, winning Henley's boat races and two Olympic gold medals. Don't want to give too too much away right at the start, because I want us to I want you to bring Jumbo Edwards to life for for the audience so they rush out and buy your book. So first, can I say thank you so much for coming on? It's an absolute pleasure to have you. And could you give us a brief history of Gavin Jimison and yeah. how you got to this point? Well, firstly, thank you for inviting me on as a guest. Um, it's a real pleasure to uh, to be invited on and to talk about um, Water's Gleaming Gold and and obviously the the extraordinary life of uh, of Hugh Jumbo Edwards. Um, but yeah, just about about myself. So. Um, I'm not a rower. I've sort of snuck on, haven't I, really, on that side. But <laughs> I grew up in um, in Aberdeenshire, up in Scotland. You can tell by my accent. It's obviously very Scottish, you know, so um, I apologise to the listeners. They won't be able to get past my Doric pronunciations here. But, um, yeah. We'll provide subtitles. <laughs> if so, you could, well, be yes. um, but, yeah, no, I grew up in, in rural Aberdeenshire in the 80s where, you know, rowing in the Scottish sort of um, state school system was not really an option for me. Um but that said, I, I have competed actually in um, in the Wargrave Regatta. Do you know about the Wargrave Regatta? It's sort of one of the I think it's one of the oldest regattas. So it's um, about a couple of miles downstream of, of Henley, and it sort of takes part over a weekend in August. And I take part in the Scratch Dongler, which is a punt, and uh, there's six of you, various age groups, and we have to paddle as fast as we can. 200 meters down the Thames, and I have yet to get past the heat. Um, my, my daughter, who's 11, she took part this year. Uh, she she uh, progressed very smoothly through to the semifinals. So as a rower, no, not at all. Um, but my whole um, you know, working life has been in publishing. Mm. So I've been a commissioning editor for the likes of Hodder, Cambridge University Press. So very much working with authors to get their books out. And this is... This is my first book, and so I've sort of looked at it from the other side of being, you know, the author that gets, um, you know, hassled to to try and hit deadlines rather than myself as a commissioning editor chasing up authors to to submit on time. Um, so that that's sort of where I come from. But it's only been the last sort of seven, eight years that I've really um, sort of got into the whole of the rowing history to, to to write this book, and it has taken taken that long really to to fully research as you rightly say the 1920s the 30s and 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 taking it through to 
yeah, the Olympics in 32, and then we, we'll go down to it, I'm sure, but Jumbo's, um, and those people that might have heard about uh, Hugh, Hugh Edwards is maybe more as a coach. So, mm. you know, when he was coaching Oxford in the, in the 50s and 60s. Um, yes. And so, yeah, I've had to, and I've been really, you know, the rowing community have been fantastic with me. You know, they've really um, sort of welcomed me and helped me so much in, in the writing and research. Can at times feel starved for attention? So when it's just like somebody comes along and says, you're yeah. an author and you want to write about rowing, you know, actual rowing, not not like canoeing. Is We get yeah. quite excited. It, it's, it, it, it is, you know, we, we get once a year at the boat race and once every four years at the Olympics and then then we do sometimes feel like nobody cares. And I, I do have a theory that that as rowers, I don't feel I've read a rowing book that has conveyed what it feels like to move a boat and why we do it and why we fall in love with it that quite hits the spot in the same way as Water's Gleaming Gold. Oh, but thank you. Just to, but just to wind back, the scratch dongler at the Wargrave <laughs> sounds like something that you used to have to have when the internet was a dial-up connection. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're punting used to be, down the river. You're you're punting down the river. Yeah, but they they have punting races as well, and hmm. they used to have until uh, health and safety kind of put a stop to it. They also had the slippery pole event uh, over the Thames. So there was a pole where you had to then greased up that you then had to try and inch your way forward. So as a regatta, slightly less traditional as 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 Henley, um, but and slightly less hell of a lot more fun. You know, and open to everyone. Yeah, you know, so it's a big community thing for Wargrave, and uh, yeah, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic regatta on the Thames. I like the slippery pole idea for aspiring politicians. Get yourself yeah, into the Wargrave and go and try it out. There's plenty of them there, actually. So yeah. yeah, we understand that in coming to this story, as you come from your publishing background and you, you cross the great divide into becoming an author, that thing that all publishers are scared of and try and keep at arm's length with a whip yeah. and a chair, you actually became one. Because there are there are family ties to to Hugh Edwards to Jumbo and his story, could you just outline the path that took you into um, mm. undertaking this? Because it feels like part reclamation, part celebration. When I was reading it, yeah, thank you. It's um, yeah, so it goes back to two thousand and six. So that's when I first heard the name of of of, of the you know that slightly comical name of Jumbo and Jumbo Edwards. Um, my girlfriend at the time, Melissa, so she'd invited me to to go up to Henley uh, on the Friday for, um, and she had uh, sort of passes entries to to the stewards enclosure. Um, mm -hmm. I'd never been, you know, as as you know, as we taught earlier. My my interest in rowing had been, you know, as as so many, maybe not in the rowing community, has been was watching the Olympics, you know, watching Redgrave and Pinson and Cracknell and the Searle brothers in the eighties, and and then. My dad, who, who went to Cambridge, um, yeah, we we all have to watch the boat race every year. So, going to Henley for the very first time, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, and it was one of those glorious summer's day, you know, obviously the the rowers and the blazers and the caps. And it was there um, at the regatta that I these sort of older rowers in these faded caps were coming up to Melissa. And saying, "Oh, are you Jumbo's granddaughter," and and she was saying yes. And I started to hear these stories. I wondered, "Who is Jumbo?" 
you know, we'd only been dating for a few months, so it wasn't, you know, I hadn't quite got to the stage of talking about who our ancestors were. But um, she said, oh, yes, he's my grandfather. He'd won two Olympic gold medals. Uh, he coached Oxford. Um, and I was like, oh, my goodness, this is a this is amazing. But it was, um, you know, from that point forward. Of, and then I met uh, her father, David Edwards, at the regatta. And David is the was the youngest son of Jumbo Edwards. Mm. And David rode for um, for Oxford in the boat race in, in uh, 59 and 58, um, and also Commonwealth Games for Wales. Um, and then if we fast forward from 2006, so in 2009, uh, we got married, uh, Melissa and I. I thought, yeah, there's, there's a book in here somewhere, so I better marry her so I can get you know, full access to the archives and to the, <laughs> to the photograph albums. Um, but you know, from 2006 to 2009, I would just hear stories of of this this man, Jumbo Edwards, and what he had achieved. So it wasn't just the Olympic golds; it was oh, he was also an RAF pilot. Oh, you know, he he was also won British Empire gold medals. He also coached Oxford, um, and so you know, the, the stories were beginning to you know to come through, and and it was just the most seemed to me as as well as the family that just the most perfect opportunity to write a book about what was a remarkable life it really truly was an extraordinary life it was crammed full of incident i mean he didn't just he didn't just coach oxford he he kind of broke the cambridge monopoly that had, that had been going on and it wasn't it wasn't a smooth passage as so many things in british rowing at the time weren't so You've reached this point. You've met Melissa and started dating. You've taken the very <laughs> wise step of marrying her to get I, your hands on the family archives, and I'm exactly. sure you're very happy that that is the reason why you eventually went down on one knee. Well, yeah, as, as an author, you have to plan these things. You know, as an author, you have to strategize. <laughs> I feel um, you've introduced this I, this character who's not a character, is a real person who lived and loved and and lost mm. and 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 all of the wonderful things that he did of Jumbo, Hugh Jumbo Edwards, take us back and outline the sort of world that that Hugh Edwards was born into at the time. Because we 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 have a sense of Britain as a continuum, but we feel there's a sense of continuity between the past and the present. But if we were to time machine back now to 1923 or um, 1903 or 1823, we'd still very much be in Britain, but we'd be mm. we'd be looking at things we'd see a country that was very, very different with different attitudes and different beliefs and different perceptions about things. So so give us a flavour of the world that Jumbo was born into. Yeah, so he was born in 1906 in Oxfordshire. His father was a, a Welsh um, vicar. Uh, his his mother was um, had sort of dual Welsh-Dutch heritage. Um, her, on the mother's side, um, she was a Van Motman and they'd made their money out in Java um, a sort of Dutch family uh, with a, a Dutch East Indies company with various coffee plantations. Um, and so it was a very Welsh family that he was, he was a Welsh Dutch family he was born into. Um, his father had been, had moved from Bangor in Wales to Oxfordshire to this little um, vicarage, uh, Westcott, um, Barton. And, and so he was born there in 1906. And, when he was born, he had he was the fourth child. So there was two older brothers, one older sister. Um, 
but his older brother was to die at the age of 11. Um, and his, so that sort of hit the tragedy on that side of things. But so this is sort of pre-war. So Jumbo and, and, and his, um, his other brother, uh, Cecil, but, you know, as, as we talk, we're going to find that there's these, you know, these characters from, from the, the 20s and 30s, these wonderful rowers, they were never called by their first name. So, so Cecil was Sphinx. So he was known as Sphinx. And um, so they both went to the Dragon School in Oxford. Hmm. And, and that was during the First World War. And then after the, the First World War, uh, they, uh, the family, um, the, the, the two boys were enrolled at Westminster. And it was at Westminster that at the school that, that Jumbo and, Bo, and Sphinx um, both really discovered their love and their passion for rowing. Um, Sphinx probably first. So in Westminster at that time, um, it didn't really, it, it only just started having rowing back on the curriculum for the boys. Mm. Um, yeah, after the first world war, it didn't have its own boathouse. So they were using the facilities at London rowing club down the Thames and what Jumbo would do, he would go out, um, and yeah, sculling on, on the river Thames, but he would wait because his great hero at the time was, was Jack Beresford. Um, and hopefully uh, the listeners will, will know about Jack. And, and, and so Jack had already at that stage had competed in um, at least one Olympic Games. Mm. And he was the great, the great sort of sculler of, of his time. And Jumbo would, would sort of wait for him to, to sort of row past. And then he would try and pace himself to see if he could keep up with him. And the, on the on the Thames, um, and just really, um, you know, really you know, taking in that 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 passion of, of being on the river and being on the boat, um, and and Jumbo was a man of passions, as as I'm sure we'll see later on, um, and and it was rowing that had really really taken over his life. Is is that kind of that idea? I mean, I think a lot of rowers like listening to this. Um, of any particular stripe will like that idea of just like, oh, right, there's this person who's better than you and you're going to wait and then you're going to see how long you can keep up with them or stay ahead of them from them. Is, is that just a mentality that was absolutely inherent within him, that kind of, kind of a mixture of competitiveness and measurement? Hmm. I think definitely. And and there was at this stage, so Jack would have been 25, uh, Jumbo would have been 15. So there's a 10 year difference between them. Um, and the boys, the Westminster boys, you know, when the boat race came around, they idolized the the crews um, or for the boat race, you know, going out, getting their autographs, following their every, all their practices uh, and, and following that. But for, for Jumbo, it was specifically, it was Jack that, you know, he saw as his his idol and the ability to be able to pace himself and to try and, you know, put himself up against Jack. You know, I, I, I don't actually know if Jack was actually aware that Jumbo was was trailing sort of behind him by quite a while. Um, I'm sure he did because the two became firm friends and, and obviously won, you know, won Olympic titles together. But, um, yeah, you're right. I think he he, he was someone who... It strikes me. So his brother Sphinx um, had a natural talent in the boat, 
He was just um, everything that the Sphinx did, he just seemed to excel at. One of those really annoying, probably older brothers for him. For Jumbo, it always seems that he had to work to get to that level of, of excellence in the boat. So he was constantly at London Rowing Club. Um, in those days, it, it doesn't exist now. Um, there used to be a tank. They put a tank in, um, and he would be on in, in the tank just practicing and, and constantly rowing, constantly trying to build up his his physique as well. And to with the thought that one day he too could could maybe um, be selected for the for the boat race. Yeah, his his brother was called um, Sphinx because he was somewhat inscrutable. Nothing ever seemed to kind of slap <laughs> him. Is that the case? And, exactly. Um, yeah. And at that point, um, when they were at Westminster, because Westminster now, if you go to Henley, Westminster, like St Paul's and a couple of other schools, perhaps in Abingdon, will be there or thereabouts in 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 the Henley Regatta. They have a very strong rowing program. Uh, um, but it had been off the curriculum, and I believe they. I believe that they both um, decided that one of the things they wanted to do before they they left and went up to university was that they wanted to try and put Westminster back on the map. Would that would, would that be? A, and at that point, Cecil or, or Sphinx was seen mm-hmm. as the talent. Yeah, he was, and he was sort of head of the boats. Um, is his sort of title at, at Westminster. He was seen as the um, the great hope for Westminster because they hadn't had a a rowing blue for know, quite a few decades. Um, you know, not suddenly, not nothing uh, pre. You know, after after the First World War, maybe uh, late eighteen hundreds there was, but um, they saw them. You know, perhaps in in Cecil that in or Sphinx that they had someone that could go on and and to to win a blue and and to really raise the profile of Westminster once again to become a a force in in the rowing world so so the two things that are sort of like bouncing around here i mean obviously the nicknames thing um makes everything sound somewhat kind of jeeves and Westbridge. there's like a big wodehouse feel to this whole thing it all seems very jolly, but then presumably actually life in the 1920s was actually significantly tougher than it is today. And, I mean, we've already mentioned deaths in the family, mm. and we're just coming out of, you know, the First World War, which an unimaginable toll on the young men of England was there a, was there a feeling at that time amongst young men that actually life was quite short and you know you, you know you had to make your mark yeah i mean you're completely right it you know doing the research and writing about these these rowers from the 20s it does feel like it is out of a pg woodhouse uh Jeeves and worcester novel uh, especially with the names but of course it was known as the roaring 20s you had that sense amongst the young of you know the the first world war is over there's um you know a, a, a greater perhaps freedom that they felt um a greater sense of you know the 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 horrors of the first world war are sort of behind us we're the new generation um however you know it's not soon after that you know the great depression kicks in mm. and suddenly you know everything that um especially in the late 20s that and 
that you know that optimism and that sense of you know okay that you know the worst is behind us and then things do change and as you rightly say I mean his his, his older brother who, who did who died he died of you know just I think it's meningitis you know something that now you know easily cured but back then you know w- was a killer and it was um yeah it was it was a tough time and and also this you know that you know his family it wasn't um yeah, his father was a vicar. Um, yeah, it wasn't great. There wasn't great money there. Uh, in, in it it wasn't country. It wasn't country houses and vast fortunes. It was comfortably exactly. middle class, but it was working middle class. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and that was something that you know that that, that they always um, not fought against, but you know they, they always succeeded in spite of. Hmm. Because they, they, as so many did, they also lost family in the First World War. They went up to Westminster for because they they moved schools to to get appropriate schooling because their their path was taking them towards Oxbridge and Oxford in particular. Um, having started trailing Jack Beresford in the single and and using him as a kind of a measuring stick to develop his talent, um, he then progresses through to the first eight at Westminster. And their their aim of developing Westminster as a first class rowing force in the country kind of it comes to fruition because they they make it through to Henley and they make a decent fist of it. So imagine our listeners, um, most of whom are rowers, they'll have been to modern Henley. But if 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 aliens beamed in from outer space, we'd obviously ask them what their two K score is first before letting <laughs> them come in. But try and paint a picture of, of of how important Henley was, not just in kind of the rowing and middle class consciousness, but it was a real sporting event then, wasn't it? It was a massive national thing. It was, and not just a great sporting event, it was a great social event. So you know, during the research for it, um, for the book, and one of the great resources now open is is the British newspaper archive, where you can, you know, you can go in and you can search on the years, and you can search for Henley, and um, yeah, so Henley was front page on the Tatler and uh, the London Illustrated News. It was the the big social gathering as well as a sporting gathering. Um, so yes, you had you know immense tradition there, um, and it it was a you know, for for you know, it was an upper class sort of upper middle class um, event because of the, the the social aspects of it, um, and also for the actual um, you know rowing clubs and 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 the schools that were competing were all you know the public schools um, for the the ladies uh, plate uh, for instance, um, so it, it would have been a very um, you know, a very traditional week at Henley, mm. something that was not just back page news about the actual results, because Henley was always, and and spe- specifically for Jumbo, um, and I talk about this in the book and through his his recollections, Henley was the pinnacle of of rowing excellence. Mm. You know, if you won the uh, the diamonds, you won the the Challenge Cup, you won the silver goblets. That was the sense of that you had made it as a rower. You were the world's best. Whereas, yes. you know, the Olympic Games at this point in, in the 20s, um, and, and I'm sure we'll come and talk about 1932, but but Jumbo was quite indignant about having to go to the Olympic Games to prove himself. He, he said, I'd already proved myself. I'd already, you know, won at Henley. 
you know, what else is there for me to prove? Why should I travel thousands of miles to Los Angeles and compete when I've proved to everybody that I am one of the, the best oarsmen? So Henley and, and, and the boat race, those were the two pinnacle events in, in the rowing calendar. Um, you know, the Olympics was there and the Empire Games happened in 1930. You know, they, they were minor. They were minor regattas compared to what was happening at Henley. Because we think we think of the part of the story is the is the amazing two Olympic golds yeah. in 1932, but but Jumbo's perception that he proved himself that wasn't an iconoclastic individual that was a widely held cultural perception. Why do you want to go over there when you've already proved you're that you're the best in the world because you've won at Henley? Mm. No, exactly, exactly, and and you know his you know, from his rowing career. Um, you know, obviously we have the coaching and the RAF years, but you know, as an oarsman, his greatest achievement was what he achieved at Henley in 1931, and that was he won all three of the major finals. Um, you know, he won the Grand, the Stewards, and, and the Goblets in one regatta. It's never been done since. Um, only one other had done it prior to him, but to do that on the final Sunday, um, to win all three, um, yeah, that, that, that was his greatest achievement. And obviously he does win two Olympic gold medals, you know, at the one regatta, but Henley for him was, that was his greatest achievement. When you, when you put it like that, I mean, any, any rower would be happy with one win in any of them, that would be a high point of their career. Even even back in the imperial age, where when you you might see you might see someone who won the goblets four years in succession, and then someone else who won it through it. But, but to do three on the final, so it hasn't been done again since. I very much doubt, Lou, and that it it, it would be. But it, it, it well, definitely wasn't. I mean, in 1931, you know, he's racing against, um, you know, for London Rowing Club, they're racing against Leander, they're, you know, they're racing against the Americans, you know, mm. Yale and and things. And, um, you know, it, it's, you know, you these think, oh, well, there was, pardon me? These are not gimme finals. No. These, are, these are not walkovers. These are not processions. This is the very best that the world of rowing had to offer at, exactly. the, at, at the time. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I do find it somewhat... Um, incredible. It is. Um, and, but this and is one other one other point. One of the great um, sort of slight diversion here, but we're talking about the social and and what Henley was like when when Jumbo was racing there. There was the the great American um, scholar uh, uh, Jack Kelly, uh, and, and Jack was the um, he was the father of uh, Grace Christ. Kelly. Um, yeah, Princess of Monaco, and 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 it's quite a famous story. But yeah, Jack was. Um, you know, going coming to Henley to prove himself as the world's best. Mm. Um, however, it was discovered that he had, I think it was during a summer time, he had a his father owned a construction company mm. and Jack had helped out doing a bit of manual labor uh, for a week or two during the summer. But by doing manual labor, that meant that he couldn't compete to Henley. Because he'd been in trade. Because he'd been in trade. And, that, and that's, that's what Henley was in his 20s. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I don't expect you to have strong opinions on this, Gavin. That's what I'm here for as the token <laughs> northerner in the room. But there was a very strong sense of the amateur tradition around rowing at this time, which, which I find really interesting because rowing 
rowing and racing rowing boats comes from a very very it comes from the king's watermen in the tudor period racing each other for the honor of being the king's barges between the palaces and then you get things like Doggett's coat and badge and you have people like harry clasper who was world champion i think it was eight or nine times who could never row at henley because he he was a boat builder from the northeast so he was in trade too so you have this kind of this two-tier system going on but we have to remember at the same time that those notions of class um, and those notions of exclusivity and certain events being for certain classes and certain events being for others, like Doggett's Coat and Badge is still, is still run by the Thames Watermen for apprentice watermen single scholars. Those were very, very deeply embedded notions that, that were widely accepted. So it wasn't like there was a massive furore about the... Um, um, Jack Kelly not being allowed to compete, it was just seen as as a it's the natural order of things. Mm. Yeah, you were seen as strangely, yeah, if you were a gentleman sportsman, then you wouldn't have been involved in doing any manual labor or being involved in trade. It, mm. Amateurism went seemed to go hand in hand with being, you know, quote, a, a, a gentleman. Yeah. And um, and it's it's ironic because if you look at it in cricket and the WG Grace years where he earns more from cricket than any professional ever did, there's a double standard at play, but that's part of kind of the what you might call the British condition, if if that would be a fair way of putting it. So he's out he he's at Westminster. He makes a run in the ladies' challenge plate, which is a good fist of it. That's his first experience. We've leapt ahead to when he actually wins. <laughs> he goes up to Oxford. Was he going to study hard for his degree and enter a profession, or was he going up there to smack a boat down a river? Uh, he was going there to smack a boat down a river. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a simple yeah. it, And again, he's following in the footsteps of his brother, um, Sphinx, mm. who had gone up to Christchurch um, the year before. Um, and, and Sphinx the year before, so 1925, Sphinx uh, competed in the boat race yep. and won his blue. Um, and that was the year actually that Oxford sank. Um, so he was always following kind of in the footsteps of his brother, but also that again, as a man of passions and the passion of rowing, he thought, yeah, the, the only place to really go would be Oxford or Cambridge. Um, and Oxford, yeah, it's where he was born, Oxfordshire. Um, his father, um, had, had gone to Oxford, hadn't rowed, um, and so Christchurch, he thought, had probably the best boat club at the time, hmm. uh, one of them. So um, it was Christchurch. So, yeah, it very much led by the the passion to to be able to row as well as to study, but rowing primarily. And Oxford at this time, the boat races, as you say, like the Grand National or, or you know, um, Wimbledon, it's kind of a British, it's kind of a British fixture. It goes back a long way. But in the 1920s, Oxford was some, would it be fair to say that they were somewhat in in the doldrums compared to Cambridge? They were immensely in the doldrums. I think they'd only won, I'll have to look back, but I think they'd only won one boat race since the the, um, the boat race had started up again after the First World War. Uh, Cambridge were, were yeah, dominant mm. in, in that, that whole time. Um, and so... Jumbo at the age of 19, um, a freshman at Cambridge, and much to almost his surprise, he gets selected for the for the the boat. Um, yeah, he had 
already, you know, he was competing um, for Christchurch in, you know, the fours and the pairs. Um, and they obviously saw a talent there with him, but he was the youngest uh, in the boat. So he was selected for the 1926 boat race alongside and his brother. Alongside Sphinx. And that turned out to be one of the momentous boat races um, in the end. It's, yeah. And this is one of the pivotal not just a pivotal moment within the narrative of, of Water's Gleaming Gold, but also in the life of Jumbo. Mm. Um, that in 1926, as you correctly say, you know, Cambridge are dominant. But in this boat race, um, you know, the halfway point at, at Chiswick, the, the boats are, are you know, neck to neck. It's the closest boat race that, you know, people have seen since since the First World War. You know, Oxford are actually, you know, with Jumbo at rowing at five and with Sphinx's brother in the boat as well, they were just, you know, powering down, just looking so strong and just, you know, this could well be the year that 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 Oxford were finally going to going to defeat Cambridge. But at that uh, Chiswick Steps, inexplicably, Jumbo stops rowing. He collapses in the boat mm. and... That's it for Oxford. You know, Cambridge spurt ahead. Um, and once again, they win easily. Jumbo manages, uh, Bill Rathbone um, uh, manages to sort of push him back up into a, a sitting position. He manages to start rowing again. But obviously by then, and, you know, the, the boat race is lost. Um, he collapses again near the end. And you can actually go back to some old Pathé news clips and you can actually see the moment that he's... You know, you can you can see seven seven you know mm. seven seven in the boat. Where's the eighth? And it's it's Jumbo. He's collapsed in the boat and he's pushed back up again. Um, and that's it. You know, the, he he has lost the boat race. The you know we were talking about the popularity. It's only the the FA Cup final, the Grand National, and it's the boat race that is again it, it's front page news. Mm. What what happens in the boat race, and, and the this, fact that he has collapsed and he has lost the the boat race, you know the the press you know really go for him because um, I, I I don't know if you remember when you were doing your dive back through rowing history, Lewin. I think it was an Australian female rower called Sally Robbins who collapsed in Sydney in two thousand, yeah. and yeah. she she literally from the prime minister down got brick bats in the Australian press daily for letting the country down and all of the rest of it. I, I think nowadays the boat race, it's, it's a massive commercial enterprise. It's beamed around the world. It's international, but it's its hard for people to grasp how big a national event it was then to the point where newspapers would daily be reporting upon the training of the crews on the potential form of the crews. The crews would have autograph hunters if they went to the local picture house for a picture to watch a movie and relax. They they would have people following them. It was massive. And he really get he gets excoriated. Exactly. And then the Times, especially uh, the Times rowing correspondent, really sort of laid into him. He said that he was obviously too overweight and he was too young uh, to be in the boat. Mm. Um, other headlines was, um, you know, Oxford freshman collapses or, uh, you know, drama as, as Edwards, um, you know, uh, Edwards stops rowing and, and just 
you know, the awful headlines. And so it's not just, as you rightly say, but it's, you know, it's his friends, it's his, it's also, you know, his brother that he feels that he's let down so much mm. you know, by, by, by this collapse, which, you, you know, it, it's, it's heartbreaking when you, when you see it on, on the Pathé News and you know fully the, what was going to happen the next day in the press. Mm. Um, but what was almost worse was the, the big thing was was a boat race night in, in the West End in London where you know, all the Oxford, the Cambridge um, supporters will all be down. And and it, it is straight out of P.G. Woodhouse and, you know, Bertie Wooster stealing the policeman's helmet and you know, everyone sort of ending up in, in jail for the night and sort of drunken behaviour. But the Oxford crew were, had to go to this um, the theatre, um, which was obviously some arrangement made before the boat race. And in 800 people in the theatre and they'd set up a sort of a diorama on the stage of the boat race course, you know, a little model of, of the whole course. And, and then they replayed the, uh, the radio commentary back to the audience and they had little people pushing the boats along to show where they were. And then obviously he collapses and, and Jumbo has to be there. You know, he has to be sitting there with his crew. They had to, you know, he had to watch this. Yeah, you know, not just you know he would have just wanted to melt away and disappear, but you know, he was made to go to the theatre in front of eight hundred people and and to relive what was obviously the worst moment of of his life of his life at that point. Yeah. And, so was there and, a clear sorry. explanation for for what happened to him? I mean, because so, yeah. obviously rowing is an enormously physical sport, and the I suppose one of the arts of it is how close to collapse you can actually push yourself. Was it he simply pushed himself too hard? Was he, what would explain this? Hmm. Well, first of all, so he was checked out by the doctor at Oxford and the doctor said to him, you have a dilated heart, so you should never get back into a boat. But if you want to do a sporting pursuit, he recommended uh, crown balls. Or golf, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or golf. Well, even golf balls was too strange. So, yeah, he, he was of the belief that he had a heart condition. Hmm. What was he found out later on was that this was Oxford's way of saying, we don't want you back into a boat. Um, but when he's looking back on his life, um, yeah, he feels that he probably put too much importance. He just trained too hard. He he went out too quickly in that that first uh, first mile or so of the course, um, and that he he sort of makes an admission that he probably wasn't as as fit as he should have been. Because Guy um, Nichols comes out and says so, uh, something about baby blubber, him being too yeah. fat and undertrained, which was incredibly savage. But the, I think the thing I took from the Oxford doctor's report was, okay, we always had the attitude that you win as a crew and you lose as a crew and as a club together. And this has happened. There are eight people in the boat and he's literally being hung out to dry and told by his college, by Oxford, we don't want you. He's been given this, I presume, fictitious diagnosis of a dilated heart. His rowing career looks to be over, and I believe he then meets Steve Fairburn. Or Steve Steve Fairburn is the only voice that that actually says no. 
he got to that state because Steve Fairbairn he, is, is is such an important person. Yeah. Could you explain to people yeah. who've maybe not heard? Yeah, of him I mean, Steve and, was and, the Yeah, and who who maybe don't know the whole because there's a whole battle between Fairbairnism and orthodoxy that raged in the twenties yeah. and thirties. Could you just? It did, and 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 Steve was uh, Australian and he'd come over and um, had sort of coached uh, Thames uh, Rowing Club to, yeah, some really fantastic successes at Henley and and on the river. Um, but yeah, Steve was a was a very much an individual coach, someone who was. Uh, eccentric, who would um, have these various sayings and and um, sort of morale boosting for the, for the for these crews, uh, but there was a big disagreement at Thames between Steve and and the, and the committee there. So it ended with Steve going across to London Rowing Club, the great rivals of Thames. Mm. Um, and it, but it was Steve that said to Jumbo that. Look, Sorry, you was just it- dive in there and just say one thing. You see, it's entirely possible members of temporary club to row somewhere else all i'm saying <laughs> sorry yeah and, and um so he was the only one to say to jumbo look yeah you you were you were driving that boat forward it was you that was at number five that was making the the boat you know go you know head to head with cambridge you, know, you were the reason you were the engine room of that boat um and he was the only one to give him that that sense of of pride back or that sense of that, no, I, I can row it. I'm not, you know, someone that's going to collapse that, that, you know, my passion for rowing is, is, is there and, and Steve can recognize this. So he was the only one to really put his arm, you know, probably metaphorically, but put his arm around Jumbo and say, look, you know, you, you are a talented rower. So it yeah. does, it does come back to my kind of, I suppose, my belief that if somebody in the boat collapses, it's not really their fault. It's because the other seven people weren't pulling hard enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not reliving any hard. <laughs> no, there's 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 no painful personal history in that comment at all, is there? <laughs> none, none whatsoever. Um. So he's still at Oxford, but Oxford don't want him. So he's 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 taken up rowing again quietly on the side, and and if you think, oh my God, we're telling the whole story. No, the the book is infinitely better than anything that my terrible praises can can kind of come up with. He meets Steve Fairburn. He slowly starts getting back into row, in, in in into rowing. Well, not even that that slowly. He he starts to single skull again, yeah. and then something happens. Which means that he he almost goes he, he ends up in there's a reason why he ends up in London with Fairburn more regularly. Yeah, so you know his 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 passion for rowing and obviously the you know, what he had to face in the media. I'm sure by you know students you know even you know, walking down the street in Oxford would have been tough enough. But he actually fails his exams. He has to leave Oxford. Um, he he sort of uh, sends a not particularly, um, you know, nice letter to the proctors. They're sort of telling them where they can shove their, you know, their decision. Um, so he leaves Oxford um, and he goes into the, 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 the embrace of London Rowing Club. And obviously, as you say, you think, well, you know, with a dilated heart, he shouldn't really be getting back into a boat. But I think he's realised at this point that, 
he, his passion is, is, is obviously rowing. And he is, and throughout his life and throughout the book, what you'll see with Jumbo is that he is a rower, a coach, a pilot who needs something to rail against. He needs to have, he needs to prove a point. So all the media, and, and as you say, Guy Nichols about the, the baby blubber, he is now driven to prove everybody wrong. Mm. And at London Rowing Club, he finds his his happy place, his true home, you know, with, with the crew there, uh, with Steve as his coach, um, the rivalry between Thames and, and then, you know, competing at Henley. And he gets stronger and stronger as a row. The whole heart issue is is you know isn't doesn't play a part even though when he first gets into a boat people are expecting to see him keel over and sort of die out there but so his his whole strength and it's really through Steve's coaching that is he, he's found this this mentor that is going to bring out the very best and that knows individually from his crew what it is that's going to really drive them and that's going to drive the boat to success and so under Steve at London Rowing Club, they have this fantastic years of success. And, mm. um, you know, and, and especially in the rivalry over Thames and against Leander, you know, their, their successes at Henley are fantastic. And that's really down to Steve and his coaching techniques. Um, and as you said, there's the, you know, the battle between Fairbenism and orthodoxy. Mm. Um, and London Rowing Club was all about Fairbanism and Thames were about orthodoxy and Leander was orthodoxy. Um, but yeah, he just, and he often says this, that the happiest time of his life was at London Rowing Club in the late 20s. Be because he went, he rediscovered the water, he rediscovered a group of people who were like-minded, who believed in the same things about rowing that he did, about the collective the collective esprit de corps. He was with, a th and just for those, okay, so we occasionally on this podcast will have debates. You may have seen them, uh, Gavin. People started adopting the pause at the back because St. Paul's in the Henley winning season were doing pause drills at the back. So therefore that must be why they're fast. There've always been debates about technique, but it was really quite savage in the 20s, 30s, because you have this idea that Britain has invented fine shell rowing and there is an orthodox stylistic way of doing it. And what Fairburn comes out with is it's not how it looks, it's how it moves the boat. I think that would be probably the shortest and fastest way to describe the difference between orthodoxy, which is about having beautiful form and beautiful style, and does it move the boat? Can you hear the boat sing when you do it? And and that's a and that's we were coached by Pete Holmes at Agecroft, who who was a, a Spracklin devo, uh, devotee, and Spracklin took a lot of his ideas about weight on the face, weight on the pin, a very dynamic and explosive catch, a very dynamic um, backswing and opening of the body to really drive the boat through the water. Is it making the boat sing? And that's kind of the crux. He's found he's found a place where his talents for for manipulating an oar can really, really shine. Exactly. And as you say, that that was it with London Rowing Club. And um and as you say, he's he's in the boat with his crew and and the boat is is singing as it as it glides down the, the Thames and at, at Henley, especially and, and the other regattas. Um so it is a 
just a real happy place for him and a place that he is now developing to be what is one of Britain's finest oarsmen from a position of of despair of of ridicule and and that is what is driving him on that is mm. what is making him say right i am going to prove to all those who doubt in me that that i'm going to to succeed and he's balancing this with work. Here and just ask how old in between like 1930 and 1939 obviously how old was jumbo at this point so born in 1906. So in, when he was for his Henley um, triumphs in 31, he was 24. Um, and so he was, because we kind of have to go back a wee bit. So strangely enough, he's back in the, he's back at Oxford mm. in 1929 because he realizes his next passion is aeroplanes. Yeah. And to get a commission in the RAF in those days, strangely enough, which his brother Sphinx also did, you have to have graduated. So he has to write a groveling letter back to Oxford to get him to go back there to continue his studies. And they, and I think it's probably down to, they maybe saw his success at London Rowing Club and at Henley and what, what he was achieving. Maybe they thought, right, you know, you know, he's obviously, maybe he's matured or he's grown up. So they, they do actually bring him back. And he's back in the boat race in 1930, mm. um, which which he goes on to lose. So, which which he goes on to lose, but he doesn't and collapse. So he doesn't no. collapse. And there was the whole thing of I now I now row in a Fairburn style. I need a swivel. I need a swivel gate, <laughs> not not a fixed pin. You know, uh, you know, which they accommodate him with. Well, he's determined not to row in that 1930 boat. Mm. He's trying desperately to try and avoid it because, you know, he doesn't want to go back to everything that you know he's been taught under Steve at London Rowing Club into but you know they do persuade him and he, he gets back in the boat so he gets back in the boat the press are still unkind to him yeah. but he wins his he wins his name as Jumbo as he has as he becomes a true heavyweight at last but he mm. also meets a pivotal figure when he meets Lewis Clive and and mm. and this is the start of kind of the golden run isn't it really exactly and, and so Lewis is is again a such an important character within the book itself. Mm. Um, and they meet at, at Christchurch. So they're in the boat uh, in the 8 and 1930 in the boat race. Um, but the two of them um, create this this sort of magic as a, as a Cox's pair that the styles that they both have, and I guess the personalities of, how, of Lewis and, and of Jumbo just mean that the boat is just, just glides it just it's so fast in the water and mm. immediately you know there seems to be some identification that this is a an olympic pair in waiting and yeah. as we discussed there about uh the silver goblets at, at henley so with lewis he wins it in 1931 and they defend the title in 1932 mm. and the importance again of henley was that it was henley that and the results of henley that was selecting the olympic team there, so, wasn't, there wasn't a Team GB. There wasn't a 5K trial at Boston. There wasn't a 2K, you know, uh, erg piece here. It was all on Henley. All on Henley. So, mm. but strangely, so I mean, Henley taking place obviously in July and the Olympic Games are always August. So the actual mm. selection of the rowing team, the rowing you know, that would go out to the Olympics, was always sort of within immediately after Henley. Mm. And then there was sort of three weeks to prepare and then off you went. 
Well, you, you'd like to think that if you've just won Henley, you're probably at the top of your form. So you're probably peaking at round about the right time. But when you talk about this lovely blend of styles, um, we talked to Eric Murray a little while ago, the, the great Kiwi sweet oarsman. And we, we Loon and I have talked about this in the past, I'm sure, Loon. If you look at Eric in the bows of the boat, he has this kind of, he's baking, he's basically an Antipodean Viking god taking this massive stroke. And then Hamish is kind of almost tapping along at front in front. And you wouldn't teach it. You wouldn't teach it as a as a classical rowing style. Um, but by God, it works. And with with Lewis Clive and, and Jumbo, once they got in the pair. The blend of styles, the 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 different qualities they both brought, really, really sang, didn't it? It did, and and they were dominant in in the early thirties. Yeah, they were mm. the pair to beat, and and nobody did beat them. Um, and so the natural um, progression was that they would be the selected uh, pair for the nineteen thirty two Olympics in Los Angeles. Um. Loon and I have very strong views on the Olympics. I don't know if you've ever listened to the podcast before. Mm. It's probably yep. just as well. I mean, the fact that you're here suggests that you haven't. So thank you for not listening. <laughs> um, just now it's it's a multi, it's an international, multi-corporate sponsorship jamboree. What was it like then? Because it's not long after de Corbatan has has revitalized it in the modern era. Yeah. A32 is a slightly old Olympic Games in that it was uh, in Los Angeles. So there was a long traveling distance for the majority of the countries. Um, and as we discussed earlier, it's the Great Depression. Mm. And in those days, uh, and this is true for, for the British um, Olympic team, that that was by public subscription that they were sent out there. So in 1932 is actually one of the smallest contingencies of athletes to go out because of the sheer cost mm. um, and because of the Great Depression. And so there was a great pessimism about the Olympic Games in Los Angeles, not, not just around the world. There was some call to maybe try and do it somewhere in Europe rather than to Los Angeles so that, you know, the European teams could get there. But the... The pessimism was also within America itself. Um, you know that you know could we really hold these games? And and Los Angeles at the time was not Los Angeles as we think now. Mm. You know it was you know, still quite a lot of farms out there, and um, obviously Hollywood was you know as an industry was was you know really in its heyday in the thirties. But to get out there, it was a twelve day journey for the the British Olympic team. Mm. Um, but, you know, Los Angeles was the first Olympic Games where they had an Olympic village for the athletes, um, the Coliseum, the, the 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 famous stadium, which they also used again in the 84 Olympics, wasn't it, um, mm. was seating 80,000 um, spectators, which was vast for those days. Mm. So... A wee bit like in the run-up, I guess, to London 2012, where we were all a bit sort of, you know, down about this. You know, we're not, you know, this isn't going to be that great. Or, you know, it suddenly caught the whole public imagination in, in America. And people were traveling from all over America to get to Olympic Games. It was a fantastic, um, you know, it was the first time that it was over two weeks uh, for the events. Um, so it, there was all these innovations that, you know, are still 
you know, present now in the Olympic Games, but that was made LA 1932 as such a success. It was the only Olympic Games up until very recently that actually turned a profit. Mm. Um, this was also in the middle of the Dust Bowl years. I mean, it, it, it was a time of enormous, I mean, in many cases, fatal hardship in the United mm. States. It was well, yeah, the I mean, I, and yeah, also I mean, pro and also prohibition was prohibition. Still, so the, yeah. the 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 team, you know, the, the route was to go sort of Waterloo, uh, down to Southampton, get on the liner, um, and then they went across to Canada, and then they went to Chicago for a couple of days rest before taking the train from Chicago um, through to Los Angeles. But that was the Chicago prohibition of Al Capone. Um, of the gangsters, but you're right. I mean, it, it, and Dan Brown writes about it in the boys on the boat where, mm. you know, when you have the 1936 Olympics in Berlin and that university of Washington eight that were, you know, you know, trying to, as students, you know, get through that, that great depression, you know, of the early thirties. Yeah. Um, so it was a, as a, as a massive economic, downturn throughout the world and 32 but i think the olympic games maybe gave back to america a sense of a sense of pride um and certainly you know the olympics provided that that sense of you know bringing the world coming to coming to california and they ended up racing if i'm not mistaken on a saltwater lagoon which i mm. don't think happened again until the tokyo seaway um which was such an interesting one to watch as a as a as a GB supporter. <laughs> um, we're coming to kind of what in most lives would be would be kind of the you know the zenith, but in Jumbo's life is actually just part of a continuing story. He goes on to win two Olympic golds in an hour. Mm. How does he manage that? I know now we take spares for ill athletes, but. But I think, Lewin, am I right in saying that Redgrave and Holmes in 88 were the last people to try and the, the, the last Brits to double up at an Olympics and they came away with a gold in the in the coxless and a bronze in the coxed pair? Would that be right? Um, oh, I... You, you never I bothered with that because <laughs> I keep on getting it wrong. I'm sure it was that. Um, and, then, uh, and, then, uh, and then Crackers and Pinson got two goals in the world, but they, they never doubled up in the Olympics. No. But for, for Jumbo in 32, it wasn't meant to be that. He wasn't meant to be. He wasn't he went, going for it, was he? He, he, no, was, he, he was fixed he, on his boat. He was only selected for the Coxless pair with Lewis Clive. Mm. The um, Coxless four was the Thames Rowing Club four, who had mm. won at Henley. Uh, surprisingly, so they were the team that was selected. Um, however, um, when the the rows arrived in Los Angeles, um, Tig Tyler, who who was in the the Cox's four, um, contracted flu influenza, um, which laid him low, and they they needed to bring Jumbo into the boat, and into that boat was his hero, Jack Beresford mm. of the Thames. So he found himself rowing you know, with his hero, Jack Beresford, and also with uh, with um, Felix Badcock, although his first name wasn't Felix, and with with um, uh, Roland George. So he, he was in, despite the big rivalry that there was between London and Thames, he was in that Thames 4 
competing for the gold medal um, to go alongside his his one with Lewis in the Coxus pairs. But as you rightly say, they knew Jumbo. They'd seen Jumbo win in 1931, you know, the Grand, the Stewards, the Goblets. They, they saw that he had this amazing uh, endurance and that he would be the one who would be the best fit for that Coxus four. Hmm. But it's still, if I've spent my my season, possibly my life, building up to an Olympic final in 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 my pair with my boat, and then would you mind sitting in with us? It's an awesome responsibility. It is, and he, and and, and Lewis wasn't wasn't Lewis wasn't best pleased. Mm. Lewis Clive was going well. You know, you know, you have to concentrate on. You know, this is my this is my gold medal that you know there's there's in jeopardy if you're going to be. Also doing the, the the heats and you know for the Coxes four, um, because it was a very short regatta program. You mm. know, it was you know just over a few days, um, but there was less heats in those days. So that um, you know for the Coxes pair, if they won their their heat. Um, yeah, you go through to the final. Same with the Coxes four. Um, so you know there, there wasn't you know sort of several heats to get to the final, but still. Yeah, Lewis was understandably concerned. But they both ro- they they rose to the challenge because in their pairs final that they won handily with a brilliant row by if I'm if I remember correctly a clear length, mm. and then he didn't really have a lot of time to celebrate because of this truncated program that you're talking about. He didn't exactly. Um, he had to get straight back into the up back up to the you know the the, the start line and. Um, and and do the, the the course once more in the four um and there's a fantastic that the the cover of water's gleaming gold um it has the the winning coxus four standing on the one of the the jetties and at the los angeles course and you can see beresford george and, and badcock there and jumbo who's not wearing his great britain vest He's wearing his Christchurch vest because the Christ the 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 you know from from having to compete in the cockpit he was so drenched in sweat that he couldn't you know he had to quickly wear the Christchurch top. So you sort of see him there, sort of you know looking rather um, rather knackered really, but but proud to have won the two two gold medals. Um, and yeah, it was um, and the only other. Um, rower to have achieved two gold medals in the same regatta was Jack Kelly, mm. who we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, so, which I think was 1924. So, yeah. So he had um, achieved an amazing feat once more in 1932. And that in those Olympic Games, Great Britain won four events. Mm. So, four gold medals. Two of those were jumbos. Um, and- he finally gets props from Guy Nichols as, if I'm correct, the best oarsman of his generation. Exactly. And that provided a, not not a relief, but a sense of, of vindication. This is what Jumbo had been competing for. I'm sure that line by Guy Nichols. Oh, that was it. He had proved not just to to the public, but he had pro- proved to 
the rowing community, to his family, to all those that he'd he'd rowed that you know he he had recovered from 1926. Yeah, you know, he had scaled the heights that there was now there was nothing left for him to prove. But that meant that that was it for rowing for him. And that was he, it. He'd he'd achieved it, so he was gonna walk away. And at this and he he comes home. There's no there's no ticker tape parade, there's no meeting no. the Prime Minister at number 10. He goes home and has has tea with his mum, his brothers, and his sister. Hmm. But at, at the same time, and I'm aware we we've we've already been talking for an hour. And we're still only in 1932. Sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, it's such it's just such a great story. But at the same time that all this has been going on, he's been training as he's been training for the RAF, and he 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 finally enters at, at this period as well. He enters the RAF. Hmm. Yeah. So that that having proved proved everybody wrong, and then Lewis Clive was kind of desperate for the for the pair to continue, hmm. and he does persuade him to for the silver goblets to defend that, but. Um, you know, Jumbo's heart's just not in it, and and they they lose out in the heats. Um, but it's all for him now. The passion of the boat and the racing is now transferred to racing aeroplanes and racing the planes around sport. Britain. It's a yeah. high risk sport. Then this isn't. This isn't. Yeah, this it's is very the, high. People people die. You know, yeah. people people are dying in these races, and um, you know, it, there's even an incident just. Two weeks before he goes out to Los Angeles, he's in an air race, which he crashes in a field outside of Warrington. So, you know, it's immensely dangerous, but that is for him. He needs to compete. He needs mm. to be out there. Now that the rowing is finished, he's now wanting to compete in the aeroplanes. But as you rightly say, not, he's not just racing the aeroplanes. He's now uh, commissioned in the RAF and he's beginning to teach the pilots um, and the young pilots and the young navigators about how to fly the aeroplanes. Because now in the mid-1930s, there is an awareness that the war is coming, you mm. know, that the, the Germany and the, under Hitler and the, the rebuilding of, of, of um, the air forces, of, of the armed forces, of the heavy industry, they know that they're going to have to start training the pilots, and it's Jumbo's job now to to train uh, those those young young men uh, to to fly the airplanes. And as we go into the war, and I'm I'm sorry, Lou, and I know I'm, I'm somewhat dominating the conversation yes. in the way in, in the way that you do when when there's a sciencey guest on. Um, I'm getting the sense I don't know about you, Lou, but this is a man who likes a challenge and he likes a sense of purpose. I don't want you to put almost words in his mouth or ascribe actions to, you know, motives to his actions. But when he gets, when the Second World War breaks upon the world, there's almost like a re-energized sense of purpose uh, uh, in, in as much as he's transitioned from the boat to the RAF, the war is coming and he he now has a responsibility. He not only has to train these pilots, but he has to also fly missions it's it's not it's not as if he's he's safe behind lines where nothing is happening. He's he's out risking you know life and limb at the same time, and tragedy again strikes at this point when he loses yeah. his brother. Yeah. So his brother, um, again, he's following his brother in the RAF, and 
his brother is a um, wing commander of 53 Squadron, and, and he's on a bombing raid over Rotterdam in his Blenheim, and he's uh, shot down and, and, and dies um, along with his, um, his two other uh, crew. Um, so, and that's na August 1940, mm. and that's a major loss for him because he just idolized his brother. Um, and yeah, but but Jumbo was now also being sent out on these on these missions, and the the next one that he's he's sort of sent on is the the Night of the Thousand Bombers. Um, there was two nights where Bomber Harris was trying to fight back against the German sort of Blitzkriegs and uh, the various bombing of the of the English and uh, British cities, and so Jumbo's um, has to fly out to Essen uh at nighttime raid drop the bombs and get back um and jumbo being the perfectionist he is you know he's not happy with the airplane that he's got because these are the airplanes that he's been training his young pilots in and you know for training airplanes they're not ideal for going on on long missions out to the the german heartland of of the Ruhr valleys um and so he's approaching Essen when his engine cuts out and he's flying on one engine, but he decides to carry on. He'll drop his, his payload on the Krupps factory and um, get the hell out of there, um, which he manages to do. And he manages to nurse the airplane on one engine that they're throwing everything out of the airplane to try and keep its height. And he crash lands in, in an airbase in Norfolk. Um, so, yeah, he's sort of, you know, he's not just training the pilots, but he's involved in these, you know, these high dangerous uh, missions over Germany as well. And he has another narrow squeak on the night of November the 20th. I'm I'm just going to say, Gavin, if you don't want to give away any more of your book, I can <laughs> we can we can stop now and start talking about films, because this is this is this is this is a great book and every rower should buy it. Thank you. But, I think, um, yeah, I mean, as, as you rightly say, just to. There's a is an even hairier incident that happens with him um over the Atlantic and protecting a convoy and a, a loss of, of life to him that is something that affects him for the rest of his life and which he would never talk about. Mm. He would never talk about what happened to him. So the rowers that I spoke to doing the research for the book, who who rode under Jumbo's coaching in the 60s, didn't know anything about this incident that had happened, the tragedy that had happened. Um, and even my father-in-law didn't know all the details um, because he just couldn't face what had happened. He couldn't... Mm. And and this is very common, I think, obviously for the, for those that have fought in in wars and have lost um, friends or have lost uh, comrades, that they just could not talk about the horror of what they had seen and what they had experienced. And what Jumbo had after the second after the war, obviously, was survivor guilt. Mm. Why is it that he survived? He also lost another brother uh, fighting in Burma. Um, and yeah, you know, he was sending these young pilots out on missions, and they weren't coming back. So it was something that you know. And later in his life, um, yeah, alcohol was a became an issue for him um, because I think he he needed to forget. And there was ways that he he had to because he couldn't talk about this these incidents. Um, 
you know, there were other means to to try and forget. Because hmm. I, I remember my, my grandparents went through the war, both grandfathers in different uh, branches and different of the service and different experiences of the war. And they never, ever talked about it when I was when I was growing up. And we live in an age now where everything is content and everything is instantly on Instagram and everything is instantly made into a, a YouTube broadcast. Um, but he, 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 he survives the war where many don't. And, and you have to read the book because it, it's an unbelievable experience. And yet he has to carry on like so many did. Um, and again, he start, do you feel he started looking for purpose in his RAF career in perhaps becoming a coach? Uh, he started, he starts to coach the RAF and that seems to lead him almost inexorably back full circle towards Oxford. It does. He comes back to the river despite vowing never to, um, never to go back to it. But again, it's that that passion of the river that brings him back. And 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 through coaching, he he rightly he finds himself being able to you know, bring forth and, and and no doubt thinking back to his time at London Rowing Club and under Steve Fairburn and you know this whether it's a need to to win again and to um experience that that thrill that he had but through coaching oxford and as you say coaching the raf initially um and then moving on to the the oxford years so i think that the second world war shaped him immensely 1926 and the collapse shaped him as a person and um, what he experienced in the second world war also shaped him and i think that this is what he brought forward for his coaching um that he he was very scientific and that was from how does he make his airplane go quicker and faster in the air how does he streamline it and it came through the design that he was doing for the oars uh for the boats he was looking at the italian boat builders rather than the british boat builders which caused ups absolute uproar yeah. amongst the angry people of tombridge wells but that he should dare bring in foreign thinking and foreign techniques and I had a wonderful conversation with Penny Tutor, who's, you know, a fantastic coach, obviously, for, um, but who knew Jumbo and, and who was telling me about just how important it was that he, what he was bringing scientifically to making a boat go faster, but that he had a one major flaw, which was he tinkered maybe too much. So in the length of the oars, he would change that and, you know, and, and the crew would struggle. Um yeah, he would change certain elements of the boat. And and again, you know, Oxford would maybe not win when they were expected to because they had the better crew than Cambridge. So he was a great tinkerer as well, um, mm. which was a, a fault of his. But yeah. It, but it's all... It's almost like he went through this that that not second part of his life, but that post-war part of his life. He he was in the tinkering, in the things that he was he was looking. He's been through so much. He's he's almost looking for purpose and direction and engagement in a lot of ways. We 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 would look at it in those terms today. I think probably. Yeah. Would you say that the entire story is? I'm going to take a risk and rather say profoundly. British, but it's a profoundly English story. There's so many aspects of both his character 
and essentially what he went through that were that are fundamentally and quintessentially that of an English amateur sportsman, a gentleman, and all-round adventurer. Yeah, um, he would he would immediately call you up on that one because he was a very proud Welshman. Um, and well, I, well, I mean, strictly speaking, I'll I'll, I'll defend that point <laughs> and I'll say that an awful lot of people we would consider to be quintessential Englishmen, sort of like come from places that frankly aren't in England, you know, that the, the sort of the entire kind of not melting pot is the wrong word, but the, the sort of the are you reaching of the British Isles? Are yeah. you reaching for the idea that there, there, there is no, there is no more English person than, say, an Anglo Scot or an Anglo Welsh? You think of an of an Ian Fleming, who is who is a, who is a Scot, but is a quintessential yeah, absolutely a James Bond, who is a Scot, but is a, is seen as the quintessential. You, you know that kind of is yeah, that the, the, the concept of the ultimate Englishman, which very much Jumbo Edwards sounds like he is, you know, yeah. right down to the fact that he's got like a slightly comic nickname that he picked up when he was spending his time rowing at Westminster and <laughs> Oxford. Um, again, it's very Worcesterish, but in this incredibly serious way that, you know, his life was beset, you know, he, he lived his, his golden years in between two great wars and inside a depression. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. It's a very quintessentially, I'll say British, but you could say English story because you've got the boat race, very English, very British. You've got Henley, very English. You've got, in a way, the RAF, which, you know, you think of Biggles, you think of yeah. men with, you know, the moustaches and the, you know, tally-ho off, you know, going off and, um, you know, flying up into the skies. Yeah, so all of that is, it's like, you know, this, this you know, Jumbo that lived in that age of in rowing at its, not at its finest, but rowing at, at the most romantic period, I think, of, yeah. as mm. the 30s. Um, the Sylvia, you know, The Sylvia, exactly. And, and he lived through that, and he then... Obviously, lived through the, through the Second World War, and then coaching Oxford in the fifties and and the sixties and and changing around their fortunes. Um, yeah, he he sort of cuts across that that sort of society that that we we look back on as as, as heroes, really. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, we 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 you know there there was a saying when I was younger. Um, I think the Americans call it the the greatest generation. But I I had a sense of um, as I understood more what my grandparents' generation went through, that they're almost it's almost like cut from a different cloth. They just they 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 carry on, and there were certain sets of values and traditions that helped them to carry on in that context. And I think yeah. maybe in Jumbo's life, some of those things um, were apparent and probably gave him something to lean on when things were, were exactly. difficult. And, and I think we, you know, we did also touch upon Lewis Clive and he plays a very important part in Water's Gleaming Gold. Massive, and, yeah. And 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 Lewis is is more from that aristocratic English background. Yeah, his, mm. his father, grandfather was, was sort of Tory politicians. He was part of the, of the Bullingdon Club. Oxford, but he, he rebelled against all of that 
And he mm. then um, ended up you know, being a councillor for Labour in in in, um, in Kensington. It's probably the, you know probably not not the most Labour uh, council, but he I've then been ended to up... Kensington. It's all red, largely <laughs> brickwork, but it's all red. Um, but yeah, he signed up for the International Brigade, so he went to fight in Spain against Franco's fascist forces, and he was. Um, yeah, and yeah. as I say, it's in the book, you know, quite touchingly, he, he, he's 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 killed by a sniper out there in mm. 1938, and um, so you've got all these these characters of that time, and even you know the Coxes Four that that, that Jumbo was winning in in Los Angeles in, in 32. You had Jack Beresford, who was a veteran of the First World War. Yeah, you know, who had that that amazing. And, um, you know, Roland George that that won awards in the Second World War. He wanted to follow Jumbo in the RAF, but his eyesight wasn't good enough, apparently. So he ended up, you know, in the army. Um, so you have these amazing characters of those boats in the 20s and 30s. Um, because the Second World War, you know, becomes a major part in all of their lives. And mm. ones that that, you know, those that that managed to survive and 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 yeah, many don't. And you know, the crews that Jumbo was racing against in Los Angeles in 1932, the German crews, you know, they were they were fighting, you know, in the Second World War and and they didn't survive. So, you know, it is a it is an amazing period of 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 history to look back on and to have this jumbo and to be able to um to tell that tale is something I I feel sort of privileged to to be able to have done. Did how did you how did because it's a family story? How how has your family received it? Oh, they hate it. No, no, no. It's a it's an added pressure to be writing about their my wife's grandfather. Okay, it's my daughter's great grandfather, but you know my my wife's yeah you know, David Edwards, my father in law, who sadly passed away, um, and he didn't see the book uh, finalized. But he was a fantastic rower. You know, he won um, the Commonwealth Games for uh, rowing for Wales. He won silver and bronze. Um, he won in the boat race in 1959, which we haven't touched upon, but which Jumbo, there was a mutiny against Jumbo. Um, I didn't want to the... give any more away than no, I no, already no, no, had. No, what, what was interesting was David was in that boat. Mm. And David was one of the, the rebels mm. that mutinied against his own father. Um, but for, for reasons that will be made apparent if you read the book. Um, so it's, it was a big pressure to write a book that hopefully that because Jumbo died in 1972, my wife was born in 72 and never, you know, no memory of him. Um, but some of her cousins and, and her brother and, um, remember Jumbo, um, you know, from their childhood. So, you know, I'm writing about someone that's very close to them, but, but thankfully, they've been so supportive, as as has the whole rowing community. The, I've helped so much from the um, the folk from Hear the Boat Sing website, mm. uh, Chris Dodd, uh, Peter Mallory, uh, Tom Weil. Um, I, I feel awful. Yeah, obviously, Goran Buckhorn, who, who edits it, they've been so supportive of me and to fact check and to read the, the drafts that I've done. Um, and so... Yeah, it's, I've just found so much um, support and enthusiasm to try to bring Jumbo back from the the footnotes of of rowing history. Um, you know, I've oft, often thought it'd be wonderful to go on, say, Pointless or one of these quiz things where they say, you know, name an Olympic athlete 
who'd won, say, more than one gold medal for Great Britain. No one knows who Jumbo Edwards is. When mm. you look at the lists before the Olympics, I'm sure they'll do this before Paris, they'll publish lists of the Britain's greatest Olympians. He won't get mm. mentioned in there, you know, even the top 100. And obviously, you know, Redgrave, Pinson, Cracknell, Beresford, fantastic. They fully deserve it. But I think with, with Jumbo, you have this, this person that achieved an amazing feat of endurance in Los Angeles, 1932, who was at the forefront of British rowing that is forgotten about as as a rower, as an oarsman. Yeah. Um, and that the hope is with the book that not just himself as a coach and, and all the groundwork he laid down for the coaches that followed on from him, but his career and his his achievements as a rower is what I really wanted to bring back about you know what he did achieve from the collapse in 1926 and how he he fought against that and how he won you know at um at Henley the you know, and how he won it in Los Angeles in 1932 and that that's really what the book is here for hopefully to bring back someone who who is a footnote but he doesn't deserve to be a footnote and and the book pulls him out of the it is a fitting monument to an amazing life because when the problem with greatest olympian list is it tends to focus on the amount of medals that have been won it doesn't necessarily focus on the context Hmm. and in that sense you've left a lasting monument to a fantastic man who lived who lived who lived life as we all should as fully as you possibly can right to the last minute Thank you. That's kind. And also talking about Cox's pairs, we've got, you know, it's wonderful to see this year. So Tom George and Ollie um, win Griffith win the silver goblet. So mm. Tom is someone who's um, again, someone that's, that's been very supportive. And so Tom went to dragon school. Mm. Um, so you have that connection and Ollie's great grandfather was Harold Rickett. Now Harold competed against Jumbo in the 1930 boat race he was part of the 1932 Olympic team in Los Angeles. Harold was in the eight. Um, so they were great friends. And also, but Harold was the coach of Cambridge when Jumbo was the coach of Oxford. So they were great rivals, but great friends. So you've got this wonderful, wonderfully talented um, pair of Tom and, and, and Ollie. And so I'm just hoping so much for Paris next year that, you know, there's that slight jumbo connection in that boat that you know and then obviously you know we've got los angeles four years later when they're back on the the same course that might be a a trip too far for for tom and ollie but there's a i see i see in them a wonderful continuation i i think they've got la in them personally but then again lou and i both like tom and ollie don't we uh yes um there there have been a it's the movie star hair that the, the they seem to possess, um, and the immensely square jaws and stuff. So um, flawless jawlines, yes. We we, yeah, we, we perfect. Have, we have suggested that you know should Charles feel a bit iffy that we, we have a ready-made you know king of England. We would put Ollie up for it, but he is a bowsider, so. Um, and he he has his Welsh heritage, of course, Ollie. He does. So you he have does. that connection. So there's, I see those that pair, and especially winning the goblets this year. But 
you know, as the successors, the true successors mm. of Lewis and Jumbo in that boat. So I think that's an absolutely glorious point to leave it on. <laughs> Can everyone who's listened to this, could you please go out and buy a copy of this? I am I I know on this podcast. I am guilty of what's called um, inflationary hyperbole. I, I tend to get very, very excited about things, but I have read every rowing book ever published. I love the sport dearly. I love the feel of being on the water. I've never read a book that's quite captured the magic for me, but this is one of the great rowing stories about a great life. Where would be the best place for people to buy this, Gavin? Uh, thank you. It's you can get it from your your local bookshop. Um, they'll order it up for you. Um, I'm loath to say Amazon because you know I'm not a. It's not the greatest, but uh, if you go to lapwingpublishing.com, all one word, Lapwing Publishing, um, you'll be able to find details there of the book, and and you can buy it direct from from the publishers, which, which helps me a lot as well. Um, so, so yeah, it's. Um, it's available everywhere, really, and um, but you probably have to request it. So, but thank you. A, a, a man who's telling a story about someone who is more Biggles than Biggles, basically, um, and yes, the quintal, quintessential Englishman who was born in North Wales. Hmm. Thank you, but thank you, guys. It's um, it's been such fantastic to be to be a guest and to be able to talk about him and um, to share with the listeners, really of you know, a life that, that was less ordinary. Once again, that was the author Gavin Jimison talking about his new book, Water's Gleaming Gold, which is a life of the oarsman and pilot Hugh Jumbo Edwards, a man who crammed a lot into his life. And as we said at the start, Broken Oars listeners can receive a 15% discount on their copy of the book, by going to www.troubadour.co.uk and ordering it. It's a fantastic story, it's a fantastic life, and with Christmas coming, it will not only make a good read as the nights draw in, in the cold months, but it will also make a fantastic present or stocking filler for the rower in your life. So get yourself a copy and help to make this book the success that it deserves to be. Thank you very much.